uh, the reason that we are, I mentioned this uh, uh, the last time if you were here at the end of July, the reason that we wanted to do these outdoor services is because the last 18 months has seen a really profound change to the DNA of local churches. And with that, um, you know, of course, there's a real need for churches to get reacquainted with themselves and kind of reestablished um, as a community. And uh, when I was initially thinking through these services, my plan was to, um, to uh, provide a teaching in each one that just talked about why we need community, maybe take each service and talk about one reason why community is so important. But I said this last time, I was talking with a friend of mine, and he correctly pointed out that everybody already knows that. Um, I'm willing to bet that everybody here is aware of the fact that, you know, relationships with other people is, is sort of a vital aspect of your spiritual formation. And so instead of, of using these services um, to talk about why we need community, uh, I, I wanted to use these services to talk about something that I really have not spent a lot of time talking about in my time preaching, uh, and that is the kind of community that we need to become. And so the purpose of these uh, outdoor services is, is not only to help us figure out who we are, but also to provide some, some vision about who we're called to be. And so we're answering the question, what kind of community are we called to become? And last time, we, we answered that uh, question by saying that, that we're called to become a community of holiness. Today, we're looking at our second answer to that question. Uh, it's that we're called to be a community of oneness, of oneness. And so uh, we're going to be in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Um, I'm going to read that, and, and we'll get into it. But it, it's a really excited about this teaching. Um, and it's, a, it's an amazing thing for me to stand here and think that in just 20 or 25 minutes, we are never going to have a disagreement or division or disunity ever again. What an amazing thing to consider. Uh, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, uh, Jesus is praying, and he said this, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me. May they be one, as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they be made completely one, so the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This is God's word. <clears throat> what you have in these verses is a, uh, a prayer prayed by Jesus, sometimes referred to as the high priestly prayer, that Jesus prayed before his betrayal and his eventual uh, crucifixion. And um, before we get into the content of this prayer, if I can, I just would like to draw your attention to how deeply personal this prayer is. And here, here's what I mean. Everywhere else you, you, you look in Scripture, what you will find is stories involving other people or commands aimed at other people that you and I sort of have to zoom out from and find ways to apply to our lives. I mean, it's, it's, it's authoritative for us, it's inspired by God's word, but in a sense, uh, we're kind of almost coming to those passages as, as outsiders looking in. For instance, you read the Old Testament and you read about how God dealt with you know, Noah or Abraham or Esther or Ruth. You get to the gospel accounts and you'll read about how Jesus interacted with 
uh, you know, the Roman centurion or Nicodemus or the, you know, the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, later on in the New Testament, what you're reading is letters that were written to believers, all of whom lived and died about 2,000 years ago. And so, you know, it's, it's God's word, it's inspired by God, and it's authoritative for God's people throughout time and space. But there's a sense in which we're almost approaching that, you know, as outsiders looking in, and, and we have to kind of get into that text and sift through, you know, what's cultural and find out what applies for us and what that looks like today. Um, I, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that this passage is unique in, the, in, in that regard because this passage is about you and me personally. Because this passage begins with Jesus saying, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. In other words, Jesus, if you have given your life to Jesus, then Jesus in these verses is praying for you personally. And he made sure that this prayer would be recorded in God's word so that you would know about that some 2,000 years later. All right, when I was, when I was first putting this teaching together, the, the first thought that came to my mind was, you know, I wanted to try to find some, some practical application for us today. But the truth is, you look at John 17, verses 20 through 23, this is not a practical passage of scripture. This is not a how-to guide. That's not where its power comes from. Where its power comes from, first and foremost, is by forcing you and I to come to terms with the reality that the Son of God himself, that's the same Son of God that took your sin and my sin on himself on the cross at Calvary, the same Son of God uh, that three days later was raised from the grave and walked out of that barred tomb because he didn't need it anymore, that's the same Son of God who has ascended back into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on your and my behalf. That same Son of God prayed for you and he prayed for me personally. And of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for, he prays that we would be one. Four times in these verses he says it. May they all be one. May they also be one in us. May they be one as we are one. May they be made completely one. A lot of times people talk about this, this deep desire to know what God's will for their life is. And the nice part about this prayer is that it removes all ambiguity. What, what this passage of scripture means is that if you follow Jesus and you desire to live a life that's pleasing to him, it could not be any more clear what that looks like here. Jesus's desire for our lives is that we would figure out how to be one with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because according to Jesus, it is that oneness that will show a watching world, not only that Jesus really was sent by God the Father, but that you and I really have been transformed by the love of God the Father. And so just out the gate, I, I find this passage of scripture really inspiring, but also really sobering at the same time. Uh, and, and actually for the same reason. First off, it's inspiring to me because Jesus is praying for this. That, that, you know, the fact that Jesus is praying for our oneness, for our unity, makes me believe that we can actually do this, that this can actually be possible because the Son of God himself prayed for this. That's very inspiring to me. But at the same time, it's sobering for the exact same reason because Jesus here is praying for our oneness. I remember I heard somebody point out one time how significant it is that scripture shows us that Jesus predicted church growth, but he prayed for church unity. Jesus predicted that his disciples would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
He predicted that his gospel would go into every nation, tribe, and tongue. He predicted that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Yet he's praying for church unity, for our oneness. And the fact that Jesus prayed for that rather than predicted that, it should really sober us up because what it means, if nothing else, is that this is not going to be easy And this is not something that we can simply fabricate and decide to conjure up in and of our own strength. So what I want to do with our time today, and I've written this message to be shorter than a normal message, but what I want to do today, I just have kind of two moves, if you want to think of it that way. I want to talk about, first off, what what kind of oneness Jesus desires for us. Because everybody has an idea in mind when they hear what what it means to be one. I want to look at what Jesus means when he prays that we would be one. And then secondly, I want to look at the fuel that makes our oneness possible. So, so first and foremost, what does Jesus actually mean when he prays that we would be one? What, what kind of oneness is he talking about? And Jesus answers that question for us right here in verse 21. He says, may they all be one as you father are in me and I am in you. All right, what, what Jesus is saying here is that the oneness that he desires for us uh, is just like the oneness that he and the father embody. In other words, if you want to know what Jesus means when he prays that you and I would be one, all we have to do is look at the relationship that Jesus shares with his father. Now, commentators have a lot to say about this phrase. I did a little bit of research this week. When Jesus says, as you father are in me and I am in you, commentators have a lot to say about that. The truth is that's, that's one of those phrases that just gets more mysterious the more that you think about it and, and try to dig into it. I just want to pull one implication from Jesus's words here that I think is so important for us to understand given the cultural moment that we're in. And, and here it is. It's that Jesus, when he prays that we would be one, he's talking about a oneness that does not do away with our individual distinctiveness. Here's what I mean by that. When Jesus prays that our oneness would be like the oneness between him and his father, the first thing we have to realize is that Jesus and the father are not the same. In other words, the clear teaching of scripture is that Jesus is not God the Father and God the Father is not Jesus. They are both equally God and yet they remain distinct members of the Trinity. And so what that means for us today is that when Jesus prays that we would be one as they are one, he's not talking about us being the same. He's talking about us embodying a kind of oneness that does not do away with our individual distinctiveness, all right? Now that's why when you read the New Testament, the prevailing metaphor for God's people, you've heard this before, is the body of Christ. Paul builds this metaphor out for us pretty famously in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, let Let me read verse 12 to you. Paul said, for as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. Skip to verse 14. So the body is not one part, but many. And then 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed each one of the parts in one body just as he wanted. And this is, this is the key in verse 19. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? Now there are many parts, yet one body. So what Paul is talking about here is a community of people who come together as one. 
uh, they're, they're interconnected and they're interdependent and they have a common purpose and they move as one in a common direction. And yet it's a oneness that does not do away with or set aside uh, the distinctiveness of the individual members. And that's exactly what Jesus's vision for his church is. That's exactly what Jesus is praying we would become in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. The amazing thing about this, this kind of community Jesus calls his followers to be, is that as long as we have been around, mankind has never been able to create a community like this. It does not have the resources to create a community like this. And what we have always done all throughout human history is we have emphasized one at the expense of the other. All right. For instance, what you'll see throughout human history and even today is communities of people who emphasize oneness, but at the cost of individual distinctiveness. If you want a great example of this today, uh, probably the best example right now is North Korea. Uh, I just recently, I went on vacation and I had, a, um, I had about a nine hour drive down to Folly Beach. And, uh, and so I was listening to a story told by a woman named Yanmi Park. Uh, Yanmi Park is a woman who um, escaped life in North Korea and, and now lives in, in the United States. She was actually interviewed on Joe Rogan's podcast. And uh, the story that she told of what life was like in North Korea was absolutely horrifying. But what it is, it's a totalitarian regime that emphasizes oneness, but allows for absolutely no individual distinctiveness. All right, that's one extreme. The other extreme is a community of people that emphasizes individual distinctiveness, but really has no concept of, of a oneness that ties everybody together. If you want an example of what that looks like, look around you because you're living in it. All right, in, in our very individualistic, postmodern, secular culture, what you have now is, is a, a society of people, a culture of people who all want to be unique, uh, who all want to be autonomous who all want to define truth for themselves and kind of be the ultimate authority in their own life. And what that creates is a culture of people um, that are uh, individually distinct. And yet there really is no overarching sense of oneness. And so just, just understand that what Jesus is talking about here, what Jesus is, is calling for here, what he's praying for here is a community of people, the likes of which the world has never seen that mankind has never been able to create which is a community that embodies oneness, but a kind of oneness that does not do away with the distinctiveness of the individual parts. The chances are, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard all this before. Uh, Maybe you find yourself asking the question, why we're spending this much time focusing on this? Here's why, here's why. Because when you survey the last 18 months, and this is probably where perhaps I could get myself in trouble. But when you survey the last 18 months, what's clear is that a lot of Christians have this idea in their mind that the moment we disagree about anything, uh, the the moment that we don't see eye to eye on a particular issue, the moment that, that we have a different idea about what the Christian response to, you know, a really complex cultural issue should be. In other words, the moment there's a distinction between us, then we can no longer be one. And so what, what a lot of, of, of people do is they sort of uproot and they part ways in search of a community that thinks like them and holds all of their dearly held opinions, you know, in, in common, which first off is never going to happen. But what that shows is that a lot of Christians aren't interested in oneness so much as they're interested in sameness. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. 
Truth be told, I think all of us naturally gravitate toward sameness because sameness is comfortable. Sameness is easy. Meaning if I surround myself uh, with, with people who, you know, look and live and think and hold all the same opinions in common as me, you know, to the point that we believe that, that our approach is the only valid approach and anybody who sees things different is the bad guy kind of thing, that environment's really comfortable. The problem with that environment is, is there's no possibility for growth. That environment will never challenge me to rethink my convictions, go back to the word of God and change where the Lord Jesus Christ might be calling me to change. But, but secondly, and more importantly, as easy as that environment is, that's not what Jesus Christ has called his followers to be a part of. And what that is, to, to borrow Paul's analogy, that would be like somebody trying to create a body made up entirely of just one body part. Like, like a body made up entirely of thumbs or a body made up entirely of eyes or ears. And that's not a body, that's a monster. Right? You, you wouldn't look at that and say, that's compelling, I want to be a part of that. You would look at that and say, that's horrifying, let's kill it before it lays eggs. All right? And what scripture is saying here is that our distinctions, our distinctiveness is actually, not only is it, uh, uh, not only is it okay, it's actually necessary it's a necessary part of our oneness and we're called to be one even in the midst of our individual distinctiveness. That's what Jesus is praying for here. And the promise attached to this prayer, according to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is that it would be this kind of oneness that he's describing. Not our knowledge, not our eloquence, and according to this prayer, not even our good works, it would be our oneness that would prove to a watching world that Jesus Christ really was sent here by God the Father and that you and I really have been transformed by the love of that same God. Now, the only other thing I want to speak to today in the time that we have left is, is how on earth can this kind of oneness that Jesus is prescribing here be possible? Because if the last 18 months have proven anything, it's that this kind of oneness is really, really hard. So the question is, what is the fuel that makes this kind of oneness a possibility? And Jesus, again, gives us an answer to that question. Right in the middle of this passage, I'm in verse 22, where Jesus says this simple sounding yet incredibly profound phrase. He says, I have given them the glory you have given me. Let me he's, you realize he's talking about you here. This whole prayer is not just about his disciples with him at that table that evening. He's praying for, for you and I. He had you and I in mind when he prayed this. He said, I have given them, he's given us the glory that God the Father has given him. <clears throat> Historically, when I've talked about unity, and I've done that a few times, uh, you know, on, on Sunday mornings, Historically, I was thinking about this. Whenever I've taught about the concept of unity, I've usually said something along these lines. We just need to stop focusing on our differences and realize that there's something more important than our differences, and that's God. The end. Uh, and what I've realized, uh, because I'm so much wiser than I used to be, is that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's always funny to hear people laugh when I say things like that. What's, what's, um, what's interesting looking back on that is that while that's a, a nice sounding cliche, it's totally useless because let, 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 let's just, you know, be honest here. There are lots of communities that, that, that emphasize God. There are lots of communities that believe in God. There's lots of communities that even focus on God, but are terribly divided. 
and are nowhere near the vision of unity and oneness that Jesus is talking about here. And after studying this passage this week, one thing that is so clear to me, and I'm going to warn you, this, this is going to sound strange until I tease it out. But what is so clear to me based on Jesus's words here is that for there to be genuine oneness in any group of people, for, that, for, for us to stand any chance at actually becoming one the way that Jesus prays we would become one, it's not enough for us to focus on God. What we need to understand and be moved by is that God chose to focus on us. And I know that that sounds strange. I know that that sounds man-centric, but let's take this back to scripture and look at what Jesus says here. Verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory that you have given me. Now, the, the question is, what does that actually mean? In the Old Testament, when you read the word glory, the word for glory has to do with, uh, it, it refers to weight. You know, if something has glory, it has substance. If something has glory, it, it, it matters. Um, it, it, uh, it's, it's weighty, it's relevant, it's significant. And on in the New Testament, really the, the concept isn't, isn't that much different. The Greek word that, that Jesus uses here is the word doxa. And, and what it means, it refers to recognizing the value or the worth of something. And so what Jesus is saying here, when he says that he has given us the glory, he's given you the glory that God the Father gave him, what he's saying is that all of the glory that God the Father was giving Jesus in an eternity before this earth even existed, this, this solar system even existed, all of that glory that God the Father was giving to Jesus, Jesus gave you the moment that you put your trust in him. That means that in the eyes of God the Father, you are clothed with all of the same glory that clothes Jesus Christ. That's how much he values you. That's how worthwhile you are to him. That's how much he treasures you. It means the moment that you give your life to Jesus, God interacts with you exactly the same way the father does in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, he, he, as soon as he saw your silhouette on the horizon, he came running to meet you. He threw his arms around you. He put his robe on your back, his sandals on your feet, his ring on your finger. He threw a party to celebrate your return to his family. What Jesus is saying here, you have to understand this, that the moment you gave your life to Jesus, Jesus is saying here, you matter in the eyes of the only one whose opinion ultimately matters. And you need to understand that. You need to be moved by that personally. But more than that, more than that, you and I need to understand that all of that is equally true for every single one of our Christian brothers and sisters, even the ones that we disagree with the most and have the hardest time getting along with. What, what this passage of scripture, what Jesus' words in verse 22 force us to come to terms with is the reality that when we interact with another Christian, when we interact with another believer, we're interacting with someone who in the eyes of God the Father is clothed with all of the same glory that Jesus Christ himself is clothed in. And if that is how God the Father sees that person, then you and I better see him that way as well. I don't know that anybody put this better than, than, than C.S. Lewis. I came across this quote this week. I love this. He said, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my, my back. 
a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, and here's how he bottom lines it. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. I said I was going to keep it short today, so let me end today by telling you a story that might shed some light on, on what you could do with a teaching like this. I remember back in the fall of 2015, I was teaching through the book of Philippians. And in Philippians chapter two, Paul lays out this case that basically all conflict between people comes from within us. Uh, it, it comes from the reality that we are starved for glory. He uses a Greek word, kenodoxia, which means basically a glory hunger. And, and what scripture's laying out there is that because of sin, we know that we don't have glory. We know that there's something wrong with us. And so we all naturally go through life trying to get glory and demand that other people give us glory. And that more than anything else is the root of all the conflict that we experience in our lives. And in Philippians chapter two, Paul goes on right on the heels of that to say that very, very famous depiction of Jesus Christ. He said that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to and used for his own advantage. But instead, Jesus emptied himself, he took on the form of a servant, and he died on the cross for us. And so because Jesus gave up all of his glory for us, that means that our glory hunger can be met through a relationship with him. And what that then means is we can stop demanding glory from the people that he's placed in our lives, and instead we can lay our lives down from the, for them the way that Jesus laid his life down for us. It's pretty simple teaching. It's, it's straightforward. It basically teaches itself. The Sunday after I gave that message, a woman from our church came up to me and uh, what she said is something that I still remember some six years later. Uh, she told me that when she heard that message, that she was in the middle of a fight with two of her siblings and uh, it, it was apparently a pretty bad fight. Um, things were kind of gridlocked. People were not speaking to each other. Nobody was willing to budge or see things from a different perspective. And so the relationship was basically dead in the water. Maybe you can sympathize with that. Maybe you're in a situation like that right now. Anyway, she, she told me that when she understood what Jesus Christ did for her as laid out in Philippians chapter two, that Jesus Christ had infinite glory and infinite status and infinite uh, significance, all the things that our hearts so naturally crave, when, when she came to terms with the reality that Jesus Christ gave up all of that for her personally, uh, it freed her. It completely freed her. And she said she went home and she actually apologized to her siblings, but that's not why I remember our interaction. That's not what stuck with me. It's what she said next that has stuck with me all these years later. She said she went home and she apologized to her siblings, even though she knew she wasn't wrong. In other words, it's not like when she came to understand the gospel, it gave her the security to see where she was at fault and then to, to, to freely confess that. Uh, she went home and she apologized, even though she hadn't done anything wrong. Now that's, that's 
kind of amazing to me because it's hard enough for most of us to apologize even when we know we're wrong. Here, this woman went home and apologized even though she knew she wasn't. And the question is, how do you explain that? And the way you explain that is because when she, when she came to terms, when she understood the glory that was already hers because of Jesus Christ, when she understood that she was clothed in the same glory that God the Father bestows on Jesus Christ, that she had her need for significance, that she had her need for recognition, that she had her need for status and all of that, already met because of Jesus in the eyes of her heavenly Father, what that did is it freed her to prioritize her relationships with her brothers and sisters over her need to bolster her own ego by winning an argument. And that's exactly what happens when you and I understand the glory that Jesus gives not only us, but to every single one of our brothers and sisters. We stop trying to win arguments and we start trying to win people. Now I'm gonna call the worship team up and I just wanna close with this. And I hope what I'm about to say does not alarm anybody. We, as a group of people, are not done being presented with issues that are going to be very polarizing and very divisive. I, I just, on a personal note, I, I cannot tell you how much I miss the days when the only thing people needed to know from me was what my stance on Jesus was. You know, it, it seems like it, almost overnight the world has changed and now everybody needs to know your stance on everything. And no matter what stance you take, 50% of the people don't see it that way. And we, you know, we get pushed into these camps and nobody talks to each other and faces each other. And it's just a mess. I, I, I miss so badly the days when all, all that was needed was what's your stance on Jesus. But my point is that in the days and in the weeks and in the months ahead, we're gonna be presented with a lot of, of what looks like good reasons for us to divide. You know, right now it's, it's how should you respond to COVID or what's going on in Afghanistan or what's the hot button cultural issue. Tomorrow it's gonna be something else. We're gonna be presented with a lot of good reasons to divide. I just wanna leave you with a better reason that we should remain as one. And it's that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed we would. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but when I get to the end of my life, he, hear me now, cause we're done. When I get to the end of my life and I look at Jesus face to face and I stare into the eyes of the Savior that died that I might live, I want to be able to look at him and say, Jesus, I heard that you prayed for me. I heard that you prayed that I would be one with your people and I want you to know that I lived my life in light of that prayer. And I lived to the best of my ability to see that prayer come true. And according to Jesus, right here in John chapter 17, if enough of us would devote our lives to that, then we would become a community that would absolutely change the world. So let's become that kind of community, a community of oneness. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, you died. You died not just so that we could, as individuals, go to heaven. You died so that right here and right now on this side of eternity, we could become a community the likes of which the world has never shown. And I can't give a teaching like this without immediately being convicted of all the times in my life when I've been a catalyst of division rather than unity. So Father, please, would you forgive me? And would you forgive all of us for the ways that we have torn down rather than built up your body? And would you help us through an understanding of the glory that's made available to us and freely given to us by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, would you help us to be this kind of community 
that shows a watching world that Jesus really was sent by you and that we really are loved by you. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.